Hello, I'm Dr. Oren Smith, Senior Fellow at Palmetto Promise Institute in South Carolina, and this is the Beyond Policy Podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the pod and listen regularly as we think deeply about which policies have the potential to put the well-being of South Carolinians first. Thanks for tuning in to Beyond Policy, and now, on to the show. Well, welcome to a new edition of Beyond Policy. I am your host, Oren Smith, with Palmetto Promise Institute, and it's good to be with you again today. We are talking policy and how policy affects real people, real South Carolina people, real Americans, and that is the subject, uh, again, of our ongoing conversations. And today, I'm pleased to have uh, Josh Archambault with us. I've uh, known Josh for quite a while, and uh, he has uh, worked in the healthcare area for uh, a long time and has released a couple of interesting reports. Um, Josh is uh, a fellow, senior fellow with the Cicero Institute, but he's also one of the advisors to the State Policy Network on the subject of uh, healthcare. So we uh, at Palmetto Promise Institute are a part of SPN and are uh, thrilled to uh, be involved with SPN and uh, always get great advice. Uh, sometimes I call it the mothership, but we have great advice from uh, from SPN, and Josh has been a great partner. So welcome. So glad Thank to you, have Ron. you with us today. Yeah, really. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Well, uh, first of all, uh, in South Carolina, it, it's, uh, it's nearly miraculous uh, because just so many things happened that uh, that caused the ultimate outcome that led to, and I'm looking at my whiteboard in the office, and uh, we, we had a couple of votes. This is on the repeal of Certificate of Need. We had a couple of votes uh, toward the end of the House consideration. We got a big win in the Senate, and we eventually got up to bat in the in the House before the committee. And then we end up on the House floor. And at the last minute, we understand that there is a House effort to conform the House version that came out of the Medical, Municipal, and Military Affairs Committee to conform the House version to the version that passed the Senate. Of course, Josh, you've been in the legislative sausage-making machine. So what the idea was, some some of the House members were saying, we can't send it back to the Senate in a different form because they'll run out of time and we won't get CON repealed. So um, at that point, we released a policy paper, paper analyzing the House version and the Senate version to explain that in many ways the House version was actually superior. So when it came down to the big vote, do you want, want to conform uh, the House version to the Senate version or do you want to stick with the, the House version, assuming that the Senate would like it, which we thought they would? In the end, the vote was 14 to 102. So there were 14 votes to convert the House version to the, be exactly like the Senate and 102 votes uh, to kill that. So in the final vote, as I look on a big board here, 118 to, to zero to repeal CON. So this means we're like the proverbial dog that caught the car. CON has been our healthcare agenda. And maybe you can see over my shoulder here, we did a, a news conference in um, February, late January, early February of 2020, to roll out a healthcare freedom agenda. We had a number of items on that agenda, and it's not that you can really read it back here, but it is sort of a visual aid, partly to remind me of that day when as soon as the news conference was finished, everybody was like, 
oh, that's really hilarious. They think they're going to do all this stuff. And we've, we've checked a, a really good one off. So we've got, we've got a place to go and other things to do. So why I'm thrilled to have you on today is this, you, you will help us understand some other things that can be done at the state level in the, in the healthcare area. And I think members of the General Assembly in South Carolina are ready for that. I think they're ready for the next the next thing. So first of all, let me just ask you as a, as a policy expert who knows the 50, the 50 states, do you sense that health care reform at the state level is, is happening or is everything perhaps just controlled so much by Washington that the states really don't have that much wiggle room? They just have to do what Washington says. Yeah, well, Orrin, first and foremost, uh, congratulations on the CON um, debate in South Carolina and the outcome there. I mean, I know it's been a hard-fought, multi-year discussion and debate, and you guys, uh, among other groups, played a really important, pivotal role in getting lawmakers to understand um, the the negative impact it has on patients, the negative impact it has on providers. Um and we, we can, I'm sure for years have been, you've been doing this for your listeners, but really the quality of outcome, the cost is worse. I mean, it, there are so many things in healthcare and certificate of need is a, just the tip of the iceberg that lead to worse outcomes uh, that cost more. And so I think you are absolutely right to think and believe that there are ample opportunity. Um, I mean, most Americans, whether you're right, left, center, uh, believe that the system is broken and that we can do better. Um, We spend a lot of money and get very uneven outcomes as a result. We have, in some ways, the worst of all worlds. Um, On one hand, on the positive side, we really do have some of the most innovative, groundbreaking, amazing uh, forms of medical care in America that we are largely subsidizing for the rest of the world. On the other hand, uh, our outcomes are not good. Um, you could go to some of the best institutions in the entire country and effectively run into medical malpractice on a regular basis. And there's just something wrong with uh, the incentives that we have. And so I do think that there is lots of opportunities. The debate has largely been in Washington over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Maybe some would argue much longer than that. Back, back that, to Hillary, Hillary, maybe originally. Well, Hillary yeah, well I mean, we, we could yeah. go back to the '60s. Yeah. If we really want to go back right. to when, we, when, right. when they really inserted themselves, um, putting so many dollars on the table for programs. But, but without going, you know, maybe having a full history lesson on that, I do think that there's two things. One is um, where we currently sit right now in 2023 is healthcare remains a controversial issue in DC. Um, you have divided government, and there's not a lot of agreement on the way forward. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things happening in Washington um, around uh, PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers, these kind of middlemen in between uh, insurance companies and the pharmacies. And we can talk about that if you want. There's some bipartisan agreement that there needs to be some additional transparency there. There's there's some bipartisan agreement around uh, price transparency and looking at new options for patients devil's in the details on whether you can get bipartisan agreement there. So as a result, and somewhat out of necessity, the most of the action is at the state level. Um, and I would say there is a lot of action. In some states, it's around the edges, um, granted, if you're kind of at a 30,000-foot level. And there's thousands. I mean, I, we looked at this past year around the country, and there were almost a 1,000 bills related to pharmacy benefit managers at the state level. 
Um, and so there are wow, certain a thousand bills on so, PBM just alone. on that one issue, which you know, wow. the average average American sitting at their dinner table are probably not talking about PBMs. Um, but uh, honey, you know, I've been uh, <laughs> I couldn't sleep last night. I woke up in the middle of the night, and all I could think about were the, the PBMs and exactly, whether they exactly. had enough oversight. Yeah, exactly. well, it's been talked about here. They've been talked about here in South Carolina. A couple of bills have gotten a little bit of traction, but not a whole lot. Yeah, so th- there certainly is attention there, and and to me that is an indication that at least state policymakers are paying attention to some of these issues. So prescription drugs remains an issue. There uh, remains an issue and in interest in looking at further price transparency um, initiatives at the state level. Um, the opioid epidemic remains uh, an ongoing challenge that kind of fits into this uh, debate. Obviously. Um, lingering questions around public health issues, who makes decisions, where the money goes, coming out of COVID, that certainly um, lingered in 2023 in a number of different states. And then there's a lot of conversations that have been around for years that I think COVID COVID just pulled to the forefront. So telehealth issues, um, scope of practice issues, who you can see, what providers you can see for what. Um, I think COVID really put a bright light at on the healthcare system in the way that it's very inflexible. And so I think that, that those debates will continue to rage at the state level in particular. Well, that's encouraging. So the states, the states can do things that could be significant for access and price and quality of care. So that's that's encouraging, first of all. So it's not just something that happens in Washington and we just have to be puppets to D.C. on everything healthcare. Yeah, and I think it's really important to kind of differentiate because here, here's the where I think the media and the public discussion misses this. They want a one-size-fits-all program or reform. That's not how our healthcare system is built. And so when you're talking about the federal state divide, really for state lawmakers, they just need to figure out, okay, what is our lane? And their lane is around they license providers, they license hospitals, they license the insurance companies. And in the insurance companies, they don't license you know, large companies, they only license insurance companies selling individual plans to individuals or to small businesses. And so that's at least, I mean, it's simplistic. There's other areas that they play in as well, but those are their primary areas that they play and they have some responsibility for administering the Medicaid program. And so I think once state lawmakers realize, okay, here are our lanes, then they can start to devise a reform package that says, okay, what are the problems for those buying individual market? What are the access issues? What are the cost issues? What are the quality concerns? And they can start to push forward reforms in those lanes. It's not going to fix the whole market but it is going to address those pain points in those key areas. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other part of that that I assumed, because Palmetto Promise Institute was founded about the time that the whole question, uh, well, Obamacare was was starting to be implemented and the whole question of uh, whether it was a part of the original deal to pass Obamacare that Medicaid would be expanded to able-bodied adults. So in South Carolina, we were a state that did not expand Medicaid to able-bodied adults. So it's still focused on the, the most needy. That you know, What has surprised me in the wake of, of that is that we haven't had um, more of such uneven, well, maybe we have, uneven results in the expansion states and the non-expansion states so much so that 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 the states 
started to move in one direction or the, or the other. We still have a very divided country. And I assume the division between expanding Medicaid to able-bodied adults is kind of a red state, blue state thing? Or what, what's, kind of, what's behind the whole Medicaid expansion now looking back, um, how would it be, 10 years? Or so, nearly. Yeah, thirteen. Yeah, yeah, thirteen years, kind of when Obamacare became law. So, I, how long do we have? But I, I do think <laughs> right, that there, right. there's a couple pieces to pull apart here. Certainly, the blue states went first, and the federal government put lots and lots of money on the table. I mean, they're reimbursing ninety percent of every dollar that's spent on the Medicaid expansion population, which leads to all sorts of perverse incentives um, for you know truly needy populations are getting less than ninety cents on a dollar. So it just leads to all sorts of uh, crazy financing and maybe some questionable ethical things in terms of prioritizing able-bodied adults without dependents over others uh, because they come with more federal dollars. I think like what's been lost in this whole in the whole debate was actually that before Obamacare there was bipartisan questions about the quality of coverage that Medicaid was. I mean President Obama when he ran to be president said I won't put any more people on Medicaid because he had concerns about access. He had you know, talked to Medicaid recipients and they can't find a provider. Um, and so he realized that there was a problem there. And yet, again, as we get back to, once again, the legislative sausage making process, when that happened at the federal level, it ended up having Medicaid uh, expansion be the primary vehicle by which most people would gain coverage, even though we've seen all of this press coverage about expensive exchange plans. It's really most Americans who gained coverage under the ACA or Obamacare. It was through Medicaid. Those issues have not gone away. The access issues have not gone away. Um, if you talk to recipients who are on Medicaid, um, by and large, they are extremely frustrated with their ability to find providers, the kinds of providers they're able to see. And so I don't think this problem is going away, whether your state is expanded or not, um, how much federal dollars are on the table or not. As D.C. gets more serious about having a conversation about debt and deficits long term, Medicaid has to be on the table because of the amount of money being spent there. But there's already access issues. And so I think we need to step back as a country and say, what do we prioritize? And is it giving somebody a card or is it giving them access to health care? And perhaps yeah. if it's access mm -hmm. to health care then we need to think about this differently. And Medicaid may not be the best avenue to do that. There may be other ways. I mean, we spend billions and billions of dollars on federally qualified health centers and all sorts of supplemental payments that the average, you know, whether you're in politics or policy or not, most people are just completely unaware of the amount of money that's being spent on infrastructure, all 50 states. And so maybe we need to reprioritize or educate folks about here are your opportunities to access care instead of spending all this money for, for a benefit that people don't seem to really benefit from and really struggle to get access when they, when they are on it. And of course, Medicaid, and it's so easy if you don't live in this space, and sometimes if you do live in this space, to forget the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Of course, Bernie Sanders said he wanted Medicare for all, not Medicaid for all. I think maybe at least he knew the talking points there because he didn't really want Medicaid for all. That would not have been uh, a vote getter, I don't think. But of course, uh, Medicare is a federal program primarily for the a aged, the senior population. Uh, Medicaid is a partnership between the states and the, and the federal government, and it depends on what type of expenditure, uh, what, what Washington pays as a percentage, yes. right? Is that, that correct? That's so exactly right. um, if you, if you, uh, if, if the, the, ben the benefit you receive as a recipient of Medicaid 
is such that the physician that you see is paid so little, then maybe that, that physician and other physicians may be less likely to accept Medicaid patients because they they would be losing money on them. Is that accurate as well? Yeah, that that's part of it. And and I should just to be very clear for listeners, like um, there's all sorts of problems in the healthcare system. Medicaid isn't the only one, and um, I think some have rightfully asked. Is it, are they losing money because the health systems are inefficient or ineffective in how they deliver care? I think that's a fair conversation to have. Um, there are some providers who can offer services for less and make it work and others who say we lose money on every single patient and in any other industry. We would start to say, well, if you're losing money on every hamburger that you're making, do you need to rethink how you deliver, make your hamburgers? Um, and again, yeah. it's a crude analogy. Healthcare is very different than um, making hamburgers. But I do think that it, it raises some questions about if we want a healthcare system that works for patients and for employers long term, we've got to have the conversation of, uh, across the board. We've got to look at every single player in the market and we say, are you delivering more value for every dollar that you get. We do that in all other sectors of the economy. We ask that for competition to be there, and we ask for people to be able to vote with their feet when they're not being served well and go somewhere else. And in so many areas of healthcare, unfortunately, people don't have that ability. We don't have competition yeah. as much as we have. No, not empowered. Yep. Yeah, and so I think that there's many policy reforms, both at the federal and state level, that would help open up a more competitive market so that people have more access. This is not about you know preventing people from getting access. It's we want to make sure that when they interact with the healthcare system, that they are getting high value. And I, I just to be clear for listeners, you know, some I, I talk a lot about price transparency and have worked on it a lot over the years. Price transparency is not purely about finding the lowest cost option. It's about finding the mm. best fit. So the best fit might might be the lowest price, or it might be the one that's closest to your home, or it might be the highest quality, or it might be, you know what, I'm willing to pay 10 times more because they can show me that the quality is 10 times more. Right. But we are right. not there yet where patients are able to make that distinction in the vast majority of areas of healthcare. And so we've got to start somewhere and start inching our way towards having that more transparent system. Yes. In some ways, I, I think of some of these things that are so, somewhat around the edges at this point, sort of like um, homeschooling was a, around the edges of education in the you know, 70s or, or 80s. It's like, wait a minute, your children stay at home all day and you educate them at home? You? You're qualified? So all these conversations that sounded really uh, bizarre uh, before the, the the world changed and more options sort of became available at the at the perimeter, the penumbra, at the edges of of the conversation. And one of the things that we we would like to see move beyond the edges is this whole idea of um, I think it was we we called it right to shop at one one point. Uh, the Foundation for Governmental Accountability (FGA) had a paper called. Um, right to shop. And and that bill, I think, has been introduced in the South Carolina General Assembly every year since it was first discovered. And But you have recently uh, produced, uh, just, just last fall, a paper entitled A Patient's Right to Save the Next Generation of Price Transparency. And this, this looks like maybe it's, uh, as we say, a step beyond uh, right to shop. It clearly is a right to shop. But the right to save, this is this is very interesting. First of all, maybe tell us 
what it is and what what the likelihood is that a state general assembly could pass a law to help this along. Yeah. So it's it is an evolution of the kind of right to shop uh, proposal before, and it's based on a few different things. Um, some listeners may be familiar with what has happened during uh, in Washington D.C. during the Trump administration. They did pass some rules around price transparency. There were two major ones, in particular, one applied to hospitals and one applied to insurance companies. And we are down the road in implementation of those rules. The President Biden has shown a willingness to keep those rules and, in fact, increase the penalty for um, hospitals not being compliant. Now, there's all sorts of a debate on are they being aggressive enough in their compliance, but both uh, administrations have uh, shown support for these. And one thing that uh, as we dug into some of those early numbers, we realized was that cash rates are often much more uh, affordable than if you use your insurance. And I think everybody for a long time has believed that insurance companies are negotiating the best deal for you. And sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Because the assumption is they're negotiating the best deal for me because it's also the best deal for them. So they're looking out for themselves and therefore, ipso facto, they're looking out for me, but but maybe not necessarily. <laughs> Yeah, and furthermore, that they're able to get a better deal because they're representing 100,000 people um, who sign up for their plan. That that was always the kind of belief. But as we dug into this and talked to a number of different cash providers around the country, we realized it's just not true. Um, cash rates are often 50, 75% uh, less expensive than the rates that you, if you, you pull out your insurance card, their price just goes straight up <laughs> in some cases. So the patient's right to save really acknowledges that fact and says, uh, we want to build off of the federal rules that require hospitals to disclose their cash rates, as well as the, the insured rates that they accept. Um, they have to disclose both. Um, but really, we don't want you just to see the cash rate at one hospital versus another hospital. We actually want you to be able to see the cash rate between a clinic versus a hospital, because that's really, to be, see a whole market, you need to be able to see across. So patient's right to or, save. Uh, or an ASC, maybe. Yep, an ambulatory surgical center. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want options. You want to be able to see all of those options. Um, you want to whether you want to buy a car online or at the dealership or which dealership. You want to be able to see what the rates are for each of those. And so the uh, patient's right to save simply says we're going to build off of that standard in the federal rule and simply say that hey providers, you just need to tell us what you would accept for cash for your procedures. Um, and then it builds off of that, which which before we move on, sorry, is helpful to whether you're uninsured. Uh, insured, whether you're in the individual market, small business market, whether you're working at a large company, like knowing the cash rate is actually helpful because you could save money by paying cash sometimes um, if you don't want to use your insurance. But then we said, well, okay, how do we align incentives for those that do have insurance? Because there are some perverse incentives baked into how the insurance regulations are written. How do we actually allow a marketplace to emerge? And so the second two pieces of the reform say that if you use that cash rate provider, and they're less expensive than your insurance rates, then if you have a deductible, how much money you have to pay before your uh, the insurance really kicks in, then you're not going to be discriminated against. You're not going to be penalized for going to that lower cost cash rate, whether it's down the street, across the state line, wherever it is. Um, if you find a better deal, then you should, if it's something that your insurance company was going to cover anyways, your insurance company should give you credit for doing that. Kind of sounds like a market. 
Um, <laughs> and then the yeah. final piece, yeah. the final, final piece is um, we wanted to uh, really supercharge the ability for people, quite frankly, with chronic conditions who are going to blow through their deductible every single year. If you have Crohn's disease and you're getting infusions, you know, after your first or second infusion, you're through your deductible and yeah. you don't really care uh, how much things cost after that because your insurance company is mm-hmm. paying for it. So they, you just go wherever. We said, how do we change that dynamic? How do we change the incentives? And so uh, this reform would put a incentive payment on the table to the patient to say, if you continue to go get your, let's say, infusions at a cash rate clinic that is less than your insurer rate, then you will actually get 50% of the savings. Um paid directly to the patient. And uh, the model bill that we've put together doesn't mandate this, but does say that if a third, if you want to use a third party, because this is really what we're envisioning here, you hop on your phone, you open an app when you're with your primary care doctor, you say, oh, I need to get this infusion. I need to get this MRI. Are you okay with these options? These are cash rate local um, options. And then the app would make your appointment for you, file your paperwork, and maybe take 10, 15, 20% of the savings. They don't make money unless they save you money. And so we're really, again, trying to create a marketplace that does not exist in healthcare that benefits patients in a major way. And the last thing I'd say, just say, Warren, some, sometimes you say, oh, it sounds too good to be true. Well, this something like this actually kind of exists already. Um, there's a couple companies that auto renegotiate your cell phone bill or your internet bill, and they only get paid when they save you money. And so that's yeah. really what we're trying to develop here in healthcare because there's so many opportunities to save money. Yeah, like a sub market. Yeah, correct. That is that is very interesting. And this this great paper you have has examples, uh, case studies, or like an MRI case study and an infusion case study, and even put some 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 names. You've got the meet John, meet Paula. Uh, John has an MRI. Here's here's the way you traditionally is done. Here's how the right to shop, right to save would work. And then for the drug infusions, we meet Paula and we see how her particular situation would work. So very uh, real life uh, examples of all of those. I noticed, I cannot resist that on the very first page of your report, uh, you used a chart that we have used uh, to great effect in South Carolina. And that is the, the, the chart that was put together by AEI, which one of their scholars said um, it was some, it was some really, extreme uh, uh, characterization of it, like it is the the most um, telling chart in the world or something like that, because it 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 speaks so loudly. And it's just a chart, but it shows yeah. um, prices for various goods, uh, starting with TVs mm-hmm. and uh, cell phone service. And we hear a cell phone. That was like like on cue, uh, cell phone service. But then it runs all the way up to healthcare, and just in this be- the beauty of this chart, the items where over time they've become more affordable are areas in which the government is not involved, and places where the prices have become more expensive. These are all areas where the government is heavily involved. So price changes over time, selected U.S. consumer goods. Just one of those charts that nerds love, but but people who just like good infographics love as well. Um, at one point during the discussion of um, CON reform, a state senator with this chart, exact chart you reproduced in your report, we put it in his hands and he started using it as he was campaigning for the CON repeal because the number one 
most expensive and the growing uh, most expensive exponentially was hospital uh, services and hospital prices. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, whether you see the chart or you get the chart, I think Americans all get it at their gut level. What are the, yes. two, the two bills they don't want to open? If there's somebody goes to higher education, they don't want to open that one and they don't want to open a hospital or medical bill. Um, and I think that speaks to how bad it has become um, in that people don't even want to see those bills show up in their, you know, if you get one from your cable company or something, well, you know, you don't love getting the bills, of course, <laughs> but you have a vague sense of roughly what it's going to be. Um, but these other yeah. areas, you just don't. You just yes. Don't. The, the whole idea of the transparency, and we, we were campaigning for this uh, at Palmetto Promise Institute, wrote about it a lot, blogged about it a lot. The whole idea of you don't know. At one point, we asked people to send us their bills. They asked them to send us their health care bills because we knew that they were going to be indecipherable. You just don't know what your procedure is going to cost. Um, one of my family members actually called the, uh, the provider and asked um, a week before the procedure, so here's my insurance, here's my deductible, blah, blah, blah. What is this going to cost me? And they said, ma'am, we, we really can't tell you that. Uh, you'll know that when the bill comes after your procedure, and you're thinking, "Wait a minute, what? What? Where else does the things work like this, where you don't know it's going to cost you until you get the bill?" Yeah. Hopefully, this price uh, patients' right to save will will help with that. Um, I was just going to, Oren, you you asked uh, the last question that you would ask is, do you think states could actually pass this? And I think yeah. Um, a couple, right. couple to report on that. So the um, legislature in Tennessee did pass uh, this year a version of this reform, where, in particular for those that seek, seek out the cash options and getting a deductible credit. Uh, the state of Maine has the deductible credit as well, and uh, the state of uh, Arizona have, has something similar. Uh, there are a number of states that have passed kind of iterations of the right to shop over the years, which had uh, shared savings components built in. Um, and, you know, I would say, what, what's important here is that it, it does take some education. It takes some time for patients to understand how this works. And unfortunately, uh, insurance companies have often, in states that have passed certain provisions, have really done everything they can to undermine it um, going forward, making it as difficult as possible. That's why the patient's right to save, I think, is so important because it I don't want to say goes around the insurance companies, but it at least aligns incentives so that there's a lifeboat waiting for patients that want to take it. And for independent providers like direct primary care doctors and others that are trying to help their patients better navigate the systems, um, this reform, if they're, they know about it, allows them that lifeboat to move forward and the insurance company can't do much about it. It's for medically necessary services that they would have already covered. And in no situation are the insurance companies worse off financially. And so as a result, it allows people to kind of move forward with market forces. And again, we're not under the illusion this will fix healthcare overnight. Right, um, right. But this is yes. a generational reform to say we need to start allowing the 30 40% of patients who are motivated, the independent providers who are trying to stay independent, how can we better support them and align incentives to reward them for offering services that are, again, 50, 75% cheaper with as good of outcomes and often sometimes better outcomes than the ones that are being negotiated by the insurance right. companies. Yes, yes. Well, I want to get to telemedicine, but before I do that, I, I, the, the, the chart behind me, a couple of other things that we called for at this news conference in January of 2020, we called for protection 
for both Christian healthcare sharing ministries and direct primary care. Now, this these two items also could be classified in the way that maybe, as I said earlier, homeschooling might have been classified and understood. Whereas, you know, you, you bring it up at a cocktail party and people say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, okay, it's direct primary care. Well, what does that mean? It means that your that there are physicians in this state that, in essence, sell memberships in their practice, like any other membership you would have. And in return for that membership in the practice, a flat rate per month, you have unlimited access to care. You can have 45-minute doctor's appointments if you want. You can text your doctor any time of day or night with direct primary care. And those practices have mushroomed. They've expanded. They're everywhere in South Carolina now. And the other is the idea of the Christian healthcare sharing, which is not insurance, but it's literally people sharing their healthcare bills with other people that have the same faith and the same beliefs, and you're simply just paying each other's bills. I know each of these, again, we're talking about around the edges here, but I sense that both of those continue to have a lot of interest and are are growing. Absolutely. And and other states have another version of it too. It's called Farm Bureau Plans, which, you know, it's nonprofit trade associations are able to offer something that looks like health insurance, not health insurance. Um, But those have been passed in a number of states going forward. I mean, they're around the edges in terms of the amount of lives that are probably going to be um, impacted by those. However, for those that are utilizing them, it is not around the edges. It is uh, life-changing. I mean, that's somebody who is, uh, I have a direct primary care uh, doctor where I live. And I mean, the fact that they can offer about 80% of uh, medical procedures for the average American in their office uh, for no additional cost is amazing. Um, the high-touch high individual, this is not just uh, for you know rich individuals. In fact, uh, we wrote a paper a number of years ago about direct primary care doctors and um, but the vast majority of them would refer to themselves as blue-collar medicine. Um, the vast majority of their patients are truck drivers. They are um, Medicaid recipients because they can't find doctors are willing to pay out of pocket to be able to see these providers. Um, they're fishermen, depending, again, where, where they're located. Um, and I think that has surprised people. Um, most of them have sliding scales based on income. Um, as a result, they take a lot of uninsured patients. They provide a lot of charity care. And I think the fact that they're able to provide high um, quality primary care, you see so many politicians talking about the importance of primary care, but then it gets all stuffed up in discussions about reimbursement and the role of the federal government, all this state governments. Really, the direct primary care movement is about forget that. We're just going to solve the problem. <laughs> We're going right, to step right. forward, yes. open the practice, uh, and do what's right. And uh, we will we will not be paying $100,000 per physician to hire someone to work in our office to do nothing but paperwork. We'll just yeah. we'll just save that that money and pass it along to you as a patient. Yeah. We'll just deliver care. <laughs> yeah, yes, right, right. Well, the last thing and this is um a, 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 another paper that that you have you have done. And I have to tell you until I saw this this paper on telehealth, I assumed telehealth was um what would a scholar call it? Um, well, maybe binary, on or off. There was either tell you either had telehealth 
uh, or you did not have telehealth. But what is remarkable about this paper, paper is I is I count it nine little slices of telehealth, and every state is rated on these nine uh, slices or facets of telehealth, and are given a much like a, a traffic signal. They are given uh, green, yellow, or red. So I just wonder if just I know there are nine of them, but if you might want to cover a few of them that are relevant, and maybe as we're looking at South Carolina, uh, either you can address South Carolina directly, or you can just tell us some things that we need to look out for. Uh, if we want to make telehealth better in South Carolina, what would be some things to think about in terms of these nine standards or nine slices? Sure. Yeah. And we can pretty easily cover most of them just by talking about how we use telehealth. And again, once an- another perfect example, maybe the example of how COVID put a spotlight on how the system is not designed around patients. And I think a lot of people are familiar with telehealth in that they are doing what we're doing right now. They've hopped on a laptop or a phone and talked to a, a provider of some kind. But really, telehealth is much more than that. Um, there are whether you wear an Apple Watch or other monitoring devices, like that's a form of telehealth or could be if the data is being shared with a provider to monitor your health in some way. And so uh, the rating, and this came out of COVID as we watched states try to struggle through what are the COVID laws that we should have? And they saw some of the headlines coming from DC and they assumed it was all taken care of. But what they didn't realize is that was all Medicare related. Again, for those over 65, they needed to Mm. change their laws Mm. or update their laws at the state level. Because again, one lane for state policymakers is the telehealth rules for providers uh, going forward. And so we came up with these nine best practices. And really what we were trying to get at was a few things. One was can you use any kind of telehealth? Is your state law flexible enough to allow for live telehealth or for you to record something and send it later or for you to monitor? Does your state law allow for all of those? Not mandate it, but just simply say, if people want to use those services, they can do that. Then it was, can every sort of provider use telehealth? Um, Can they start a relationship over uh, different forms of telehealth? They call it modality in the telehealth world. Um, And what we came to realize is a lot of states had a lot of work to do. Um, The first thing that Mm. they did was they did remove the requirement. Many states pre-COVID had that you had to see a doctor in person before you could switch to telehealth. Many states updated their laws to get rid of that requirement. That was the area of probably most promise. But there was a lot of misconception about how much... um, how clear or to your point about they felt like it was the switch was on, um, but they didn't realize there were all these barriers in place in state laws that didn't pre- prevent patients from hopping on and using the kind of modality that they wanted to. And it really matters. Um, if you can think about somebody dealing with an opioid addiction and they're ready at three o'clock in the morning to get start that recovery process, is somebody available? In person, yeah, probably not, right. unless it's the emergency room. Um, yeah. if they but but want- if somebody is in another time zone, they would be available. They may not be in the time zone you're in. but Absolutely. Yep. Or I could start by text and then switch over to video when I feel more comfortable. So th- those dis- distinctions and little details matter. Um, you know, it's in the weeds a little bit, but from a patient experience, it actually really matters. The, the area, two areas in particular in South Carolina where I'll highlight where I think there's the most work to do. One is a longstanding debate um, around uh, scope of practice laws um, for nurse practitioners and whether they can practice independently. And a lot of the telehealth uh, flexibilities and platforms do count on nurse practitioners being able to be more independent. And so there's certainly an opportunity, I know it's controversial um, going forward, but many states, red 
purple, blue states have have moved in this direction somewhat out of necessity. There simply are not enough medical doctors. We need the medical doctors uh, spending their time with the sickest patients, and we need other providers being able, whether it's pharmacists or nurse practitioner, practitioners, to be able to see patients um, that the medical doctor doesn't need to see. The, the other big one um, that most states need work on, South Carolina in particular, is across state line telehealth. Yes. Having the ability to be able to see uh, a specialist. And in some cases, um, this is the difference between somebody getting care and not getting care at all. And so we want to make sure they can see a specialist, get a second opinion, or if somebody travels, somebody moves, or somebody's on vacation, we want to make sure they can stay in touch with their provider. And right now, Either you break the law to stay in touch over telehealth, or you simply don't do it. And I think if we want a patient-centered or a more flexible healthcare center uh, system for providers so they don't burn out, so they can touch, stay in touch with patients and deliver care that they the way they need to, we need to make sure that our, our laws reflect that. Well, I think we're moving in that direction in South Carolina because we did that for behavioral health. We had a little carve out, but it started a conversation. So I think we... We have some uh, some work to do, but some great opportunities. Everything we've talked about today, uh, so many opportunities to make healthcare better. And I'm I'm relieved to hear from you that it's not just Washington telling South Carolina what to do. We can we can make healthcare better for South Carolinians, for real people, with some changes in some policies. Maybe maybe the legislatively, but in some cases, a state board, a state medical board, might be able to make some of these changes, state commissions, state agencies. So lots of different avenues for it. Um, Josh, we covered a lot of territory. Um, This has been very informative to me. And uh, lots of these things we've talked about, we have papers that we've done and posted on our website. So we're going to post this uh, interview. And folks, if they want to go a little deeper, they can go to uh, the Cicero Institute and some of your work and also to some of the things we've written in the past. But Really appreciate your time today. This has been fantastic. Great. Thanks, Warren. Just scratching the surface, so happy to talk again in the future. Hi, this is Wendy Damron, President and CEO of Palmetto Promise Institute. Thanks for tuning in to our Beyond Policy podcast. Visit palmettopromise.org for more information and to support our mission. 